0: Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast documents the oral history of contemporary art, film, and architecture. Every Wednesday morning, you'll find us web streaming on joltradio.org. Today's episode is part of our new playlist series. We're inviting artists, curators, architects, filmmakers, cultural producers, and other listeners to share their Fresh Art International playlists. Born and based in Miami, Eddie Arroyo is a landscape painter who documents residential and commercial structures that urban development will soon erase. He chronicles the loss of a community's cultural, social, and economic fabric. In his photo-based practice, Arroyo hopes to spark conversations about prosperity and accountability within the American social system. He's a participating artist in the 2019 Whitney Biennial at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. Here, Eddie Arroyo introduces a significant theme that we've explored in this podcast.
1: Over the years, Fresh Art International has contributed to art world discourse through informative, relevant, and challenging episodes. One notable episode, The Art of Capitalism, was posted August 2018. Right now, in what is being framed as a period of economic prosperity, this episode invites meditation regarding the free market with projects such as Occupy Museum Collective, which explores financial consequences of debt, even going so far as hosting a debt fair. In London, an artist couple opened their own bank to print money with plans to blow up a van filled with loan debt as part of their bank job series. And then there's Reverend Billy of the Church of Stop Shopping, who preaches the word to his growing congregation and anyone who wishes to join.
0: This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Global trade wars, suffocating student debt, entire countries bankrupt, virtual currencies and coded financial security systems. What is the role of art and artists in this financial situation? How are artists responding to the evolution of free enterprise? In abandoned bank buildings, failed urban development projects, and public squares, we discover artists and their communities in the US, Western Europe, South America, and Greece, taking on the challenge as whistleblowers, catalysts, educators, moneymakers, evangelicals, and documentarians an economic and political system that favors private ownership, capitalism is also known as the free market. The global failure of this trading system has sparked some profoundly creative pushback. In 2017, the Whitney Biennial Exhibition gave voice to an artist collective known as Occupy Museums, inviting the group to present Debt Fair. Their wall-sized installation, illustrated extensive research into complex and obscure financial systems that impact artists who pursue their studies in the United States. Artist organizers Imani Jacqueline Brown and Kenneth Pietrobono explain the concept. Today our topic is a project in which you've both been involved for years.
2: Occupy Museums was formed in 2011 during Occupy Wall Street as part of a call to bring the critique of Occupy Wall Street, which had been operating in the spheres of financial institutions, of educational institutions, challenging the way that financial interests have completely come to control our national politics, our uh, national values our national economy and we said well the financial interests are also controlling our culture and cultures and are controlling the ways in which people of the United States and beyond are able to actually engage with our cultural institutions
0: what exactly is debt fair
3: Debt fair is a project of occupy museums it is a platform where we invite artists to consider their artwork And their economic reality as connected the most expensive schools in the united states are art schools more people are identifying as artists than any other profession in the u.s census student debt has just hit 1.3 trillion dollars so essentially our position and debt fair's position is that the common state of the u.s artist today is an artist in debt and debt fair essentially asks artists how does your economic reality affect your art?
0: You sent a call out to invite people to share their economic reality with you as the source material for what you would be presenting at the Whitney.
3: Correct, yeah. Many artists would be familiar with this, where you're asked for your artist statement, where you kind of describe the materials you use and the inspiration for your work. And While we ask those questions of artists, we additionally ask them to discuss questions of their debt, how their debt affects their art, what feelings it brings up, what ways their their work would be different if they weren't in debt. So again, it's kind of doing a slow work of bringing a reality to be a shared conversation in a community that in a lot of ways is de-incentivized from talking about questions of class and economy
0: what you're bringing to light is really an interesting and very significant, very challenging topic for artists and creatives in general to talk about.
2: Within the art world, in quotes, we often look at work and create work through the lens of our various identity politics, which of course is a phrase that's incredibly fraught right now and debated about what the place is for these identity politics. But I see economic reality in class as being yet another identity politic. Just the way that so-called race can cross genders, the way that sexuality can transcend race. Class, too, is something that factors greatly into the way that one experiences the world. In our society, we have a lot of hesitancy about the idea of class and about identifying as a class and that's something that Occupy Wall Street made sure to include at the forefront of its political and economic critique. There was an incredible amount of solidarity that could be found in that moment. You saw the the return of a, a sort of class consciousness during Occupy Wall Street that was incredibly important. And we're exploring that as well and sort of testing the waters of exploring a class consciousness and how that emerges through art. Debt Fair is doing is that it's revealing that debt is this current that underlies all of our institutions and all of our realities within a capitalist society, that debt is something that has become nearly impossible to avoid. What Debt Fair is really saying is that debt is something that connects us all. There is power that can be found there, and there is strength, and there is a possibility to leverage that power if we are only able to first recognize that that is something that we share.
0: I understand you had more than 500 artists who participated in your open call, and you selected 30. How will it look at the Whitney, this installation?
2: We chose 30 artists specifically who were indebted to J.P. Morgan Chase. Naviant and puerto rican institutions like banco popular and first bank of puerto Rico. we have them organized on the wall in three bundles
3: the artists were free to submit any material they wanted there is no one theme no artist is being asked to respond to debt in general though many of them actually do and it's amazing once you really take your time to look at the material and read the text because. The work is just so complex. Within just the 30 artists, um, there's work that deals with incarceration. There's work that deals with gentrification and race. There's work that deals with class. There's abstraction. There's immigration. There's colonial histories. It's an incredibly broad range of aesthetic and conceptual approaches. Every artist that sent in information, whether or not they were chosen to be physically shown, they're all given a profile on DebtFair.org and every profile will be shown digitally in the museum as a slideshow.
0: I think it's such an inclusive idea and such a poignant topic.
3: We're honestly in many ways at the beginning of this conversation.
0: And I'm so pleased
2: that debt fair is being realized on this public scale at this time when the public conversation is really ready to actually understand what debt fair means. We are all in this system together. And without all of us standing up and saying that we will no longer be a part of these systems of economic and political and racial violence, we won't be
0: able to overcome. The crisis that you represent in this work is clearly an opportunity for action and for artists as culture makers and their followers, supporters and communities to actually engage with these issues. Absolutely. So the call to action would be one of inviting, encouraging, inspiring artists to engage in different spheres than those in which they normally see themselves as a way to transform communities and make a different kind of difference. Certainly.
2: I think that's what really fueled
0: Occupy, was
2: a rediscovery of the force of art, art as a means of engagement.
0: Here's Noah Fisher, another voice of Occupy Museums at the Whitney Museum on January 20th, the day of the United States presidential inauguration. He sums up this group's collective commitment.
4: We value art that is authentic, layered, diverse, and unafraid of delving into the complexity of our shared experiences, we commit to a struggle against the reign of hegemonic power brokers in the arts and in support of a more committed discourse. Museums must move towards greater social justice in order to remain relevant. Thank you.
0: Occupy Museums is just one example of how many artists in the United States are critiquing capitalism. In Oakland, California, the artist duo Andrea Steves and Timothy Firstnow established an exhibition venue to explore the history, philosophy, and legacy of capitalism. For their collaborations, Steves and Firstnow go by the name of Fictilis, a Latin word that means capable of being changed, to express their hope to make a difference. In 2017, the Museum of Capitalism set the stage for conversations about resistance and alternatives to capitalism and opportunities to seek justice for its victims. British economist Geoffrey Hodgson's critical view of mainstream economic theory inspires the artist's personal response to modern capitalism, a system that they believe creates inequality and diminishes financial freedom.
4: What we tried to do with the exhibition in Oakland in 2017 was take a really what you might call intersectional approach looking at the ways that capitalism influences a lot of other issues around race and gender and class and environment in the United States but also globally.
0: Why is this subject of capitalism important in the context of an art world?
4: I think that there's a lot that we aren't taught about capitalism. The existence of our project and the other projects that you've contacted in other parts of the world speaks to some kind of need for more education and a closer look at capitalism, perhaps in a way that you know existing institutions aren't quite doing. Art is something that's really good at getting us to look at things differently or look at things that are right in front of us but are just too familiar for us to really notice or look at carefully. The museum as an institution is also capable of creating powerful experiences and there's the thinking about capitalism but there's also feeling capitalism and one thing exhibitions can do really well is create... Places where we can explore our feelings, and that includes really complicated feelings.
0: You described it as a museum that treats capitalism as a historical phenomenon, and looking at it as a memorial in a way to an idea or a philosophy, a, a system.
4: Depending on who you ask, capitalism is either already ended or in the process of ending, or even transforming into something worse.
0: There's a critique there of capitalism.
4: Yeah, there's an implicit critique.
0: In the process of organizing this, developing this idea, you ended up discovering other museum projects that were about capitalism. There's one in Berlin, a permanent Museum Space, the Museum des Capitalismus, and then there's the Musée du Capitalisme in Brussels.
4: Yeah, it's kind of amazing that these three projects popped up at almost the same exact time a few years ago in three different places.
0: Your venue was the Jack London Improvement District in Oakland.
4: Jack London was our nonprofit partner on the grant from the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation. So we worked with the district to find an empty space in the neighborhood. The location was perfect for us in terms of its central location in Oakland. It was really accessible by different forms of transit. And it was a kind of strange neighborhood, not traditionally residential, former home of the Oakland port, which had undergone this period of redevelopment in the 90s in a kind of attempt to rival San Francisco's waterfront district. It never quite worked, so they had just, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet of vacant commercial space, which for us was almost this ready-made exhibit on a certain kind of capitalist speculation and development.
0: The space itself was part of the expose, wasn't it?
4: Uh, Yeah, so we had labels actually on the building itself and certain aspects of the building that call attention to this history and the context of the exhibition that combined seamlessly with the labels of the exhibition exhibits themselves. There was a wide variety of artifacts and objects and installations and experiences in the museum from interactive pieces to a functioning library in the museum as well as a gift shop. In a kind of an open exhibition design which encouraged random pathways through the museum rather than a strictly linear experience. The museum did become a kind of magnet for different educators and organizers, even though we were only open for two months, managed to contact us and uh, organize meetings and teach-ins and retreats and things using the museum space, which we're really happy to do.
0: So I understand that Occupy Museums had a role to play in the Museum of Capitalism.
4: Yeah, they were one of the groups that thankfully reached out to us with a proposal to organize some kind of event in the Museum of Space. They do some amazing work around debt, and particularly debt in the art world. We were excited to hear from them and managed to make something work. A few members of their collective came to Oakland and we did an event that was a sort of offshoot of their debt fair work that was asking some of these artists to donate artifacts of their debt to the museum, almost like ritual shedding of debt that would create part of the museum's ongoing collection.
0: What's the most significant takeaway from the experience of the Museum of Capitalism?
4: We really like to explore the linkages between social and environmental issues, which often tend to get siloed. Capitalism is a very convenient way to bring all those issues together. I think one thing that the project maybe changes about our work is causing a more earnest engagement with institutions and the institutions we create as artists, as curators, and being intentional about the way we do that.
0: Two more museums of capitalism have materialized recently in Europe. In Berlin, once a politically and economically divided city, and in Brussels, the financial capital of Europe. In 2013, Julian and Janos, a historian and political scientist, were among those who launched Museum des Capitalismus in Berlin. Their definition of capitalism is a system of dominion that infiltrates a whole society where every relationship is subordinated to consumerism.
5: One very important issue is that for a lot of people capitalism seems to be so natural that you don't even realize that it's a system that doesn't have to be that way and that could also be changed. And with the museum we want to show how capitalism works and what all the problems of the system are and uh, what kind of exclusions it produces. We consider ourselves as a political educational project. A lot of groups that come to the museum are school classes with their political science teachers or with their history teachers.
0: What's the experience of capitalism that you bring to the space?
5: It's a rather small museum because we are collectively organized nonprofit group, so we can't afford to rent a like, huge, huge space. But the exhibition is basically divided into three parts. There's one part about the impacts of capitalism. This is the first part where we show how capitalism impacts everyday life of each and every one of us. And then we have a second part, which looks at the question of how capitalism actually functions. So, what are the basic mechanisms of capitalism? And once you got the mechanisms, we ask the question well, what are alternatives to this system? How can it be overcome? And what could a different just society look like?
0: There are interactive displays.
5: Well, we have a lot of kids from the neighborhood and from the house project where we are based in which come to play with the exhibits because some of them even if you don't understand them they are actually very fun to interact with. That's why a lot of children come to the museum as well. At the moment we have one permanent exhibition and we have certain events like once or twice a month on specific topics like this week we'll have an event on colonialism and capitalism and how you can depict it in museums and sometimes we have films.
0: What conversations do you hope to spark as a result of the experience of your museum?
5: There are two things I would like to speak to visitors about. First is that they themselves become aware of how capitalism affects them and where it affects them, how it actually works and functions, and that they talk about this. And the second aspect would be that visitors think about alternatives, think about what could be different and where it already is different and talk about how they could become active.
0: What is an alternative to capitalism?
5: I think one way to start to think about alternatives is to think about the mechanisms which are predominant in capitalism, like for example private property and that relations between humans are normally organized as relations between humans and commodities. So one way to start to overcome these mechanisms is to start to search for ways of how to break with these commodity relations. For example, not buying everything but trying to share, to get connected with other people and try to build relations which are not based on principles of private property, exchange, and domination. This is, a very, of course, a very general statement, but I think you have to start with these kind of general assessments to come to more concrete steps.
0: In Belgium, we reach out to Samuel Huths and Chloé Villain, current members of the group that's been operating a musée du capitalisme since 2015. Launched by university students pursuing degrees in sociology, engineering, and energy, economics, and literature, the collective enterprise involves individuals aged 22 to 36. Their nomadic project has introduced capitalism to more than 20,000 people so far.
6: When most of us were uh, at the university or ending university, our Main idea was to create a space for discussion about what society is about, about capitalism, about our economical system. And after long thinking, we decided to use the form of a museum. And we were kind of inspired by the museum of communism that's in Prague. So we're like, why is there a museum of communism and not a museum about nowadays society? So then we decided with all young people to create this museum. So we worked like one year to create the content. we went to professors to read it, to, to check our content on facts. And we created a lot of didactical material to be able to present this difficult topic.
0: Why are you interested in capitalism? What motivated your group to get involved in this subject?
7: Our generation really are questioning the society and ask themselves a lot of questions. The capitalism is answering (laughs) a lot of those questions.
6: Now we have an exhibition that moves around. We've been into six different locations already.
7: So first it was in the more the south of Belgium, then we brought it to St-Gilles, so that's in Brussels. And there we had to translate it to, to exhibit it in Brussels because it's a bilingual region. Then we brought it to the north in the Flemish part, Gont, uh, during a festival. Then we brought it in another festival and then we brought it back to Brussels for a year.
0: How are you defining capitalism for your project?
6: So that's actually one of the first questions we asked ourselves as a collective. Actually, we created kind of our own definition to be able to talk around the same topic. And our definition is to in the system that needs profits, a true uh, private property.
0: Tell me how the museum looks. How do you occupy the space with this conversation?
6: Every space is filled with, like, tools to make people discuss the topic we want to talk about. So for example, there's a huge balance where people can present their choices. There's video material, there's a room that makes you feel like you're inside of a bank. There is a whole corridor where you kind of feel claustrophobic because you're surrounded by thousands of objects and it's to talk about overconsumption. We try to present things on walls, but also try to create tools through everyday objects actually talk about the system we live in. We are trying more to create a discussion. Why does it still exist? What are the opportunities of capitalism? What are the hopes of capitalism? Why do we believe in the system? But And then we counterbalance it with the limits of capitalism. So we look at, ah, okay, uh, we talked about economical growth, but is this possible within an uh, ecological system? And then we end also with this idea of to change it. How can we change it? If you talk about museums, we often talk about objects. We talk about restoration. We talk about preserving some history and, and not only preserve, but to share it with people. The Museum of Capitalism of Brussels is not really a museum in the term of a museum. We don't have like a fixed collection. We present a topics that change, of course. We use the term museum not in the exact sense of what a museum is. So we don't have like historical objects of capitalism that we present.
0: Who are your visitors? Who were the people interested?
7: A lot of people from very diverse origins, loads of high school and colleges because our exhibition is not really uh, understandable for people under 15. Uh, you need a certain amount of Vocabulary and understanding history and, and so on. But for professors, it's a really good tool for their course because it's a visual way of showing and understanding a very complex subject. We also have um, a lot of nonprofit organizations and people coming from the center psychiatric, people learning French. But we also had banks, so a team from a well-known uh, bank, BNP Paribas Fortis bank. bank, I don't know if you know it, but it's a, a, a Belgian bank. So um, we also had uh, sometimes people just by curiosity. I
0: understand you're looking to find a permanent space. What would be really great
7: is that it's the ancient oof, stock exchange.
0: The ancient stock exchange is your next location?
7: Yeah, yeah, it would be amazing. That's why we're so excited about it. But it's all political. They want to make a beer temple for um, like tourists going uh, to Brussels. And we want to be uh, next to this beer temple with our uh, exhibition about capitalism. <laughs> but the thing is, all the civil society, like the old non-profit organizations that are a little... Um, mobilized in brussels against urban gigantic projects they disagree with this project so it's not sure that we are going there we want to we hope we can and for the mayor it's a way to say all right we'll have the museum of capitalism then we can build this beer temple we really hope we can get there one day it would be very uh, symbolic
0: Meanwhile, thousands of miles away in Venezuela, we discover an unexpected monument to capitalism, an unfinished high-rise financial center that became home to a disenfranchised community from 2007 to 2014. Two Venezuelan artists, Angele Bonadiez and Juan José Olavaria, document the story of this community in their project, La Torre de David, Curator Jose Luis Blandet invited the artist to display an installation of photographs of the tower in the 2018 biennial exhibition titled Casa Tomada, Part 3 of Sightline's New Perspectives on Art of the Americas, presented at Site Santa Fe, New Mexico.
8: Casa Tomada is a short story by Argentinian writer Julio Cortázar. It's a well known short story. It literally means house taken over. And we thought it was more than a provocation to name the biennial in Spanish in a foreign language. We were interested in some of the concerns addressed by Cortázar in that short story. Just to give you an example, the plot is two siblings who have lived all their lives in this house and some inexplicable, mysterious forces kick them out progressively until they end up on the sidewalk of the house and they decide to lock the door so no one will rob them. So that image of dispossession, but also kind of the paranoia of locking the door when they have lost almost everything, in dialogue with the idea of people who have been kicked out of the house where they're families have lived for generations, was very interesting to us because it brought up questions about class, about dispossession, about displacement, about notions of belonging, who is the guest, who is the host, who overstays his or her welcome. That was the premise that we used to start thinking about the dialogue among the artists that we invited for the biennial.
0: I'm very interested in this project the Tower of David that's being brought by two artists born in Venezuela,
8: Angela Bonadies and Juan Jose Olavarría.
0: I found it fascinating to read that the Tower of David, to which they refer, was an investor's dream of a financial center that failed to be completed, that was allowed to be taken over by a community.
8: The story is that In 1990, construction of the Tower of David, funded by investor David Vilenburg, began. From the beginning, it had that biblical title, the Tower of David, something that sounds like, I don't know, like from the Bible, from the Old Testament. But Villenburg died in 1993. And there was a financial crisis at the time. So the construction of the tower is halted and the building remained an incomplete skeleton in downtown Caracas. It was like that for many years. And then in 2007, over 200 families took over that building. It was not a spontaneous taking over of the building, but it was commanded by different groups that were active in Caracas, somehow endorsed by the government that took over the tower and they live on finished floors. So something that is fascinating and scary is that you can see the city from the tower in the photograph that Ángela Bonadies and Juan Jose Olavarria took. And you see like the vision of the city that these people living in the tower will have, but also you will see the conditions of poverty and survival <laughs> that they have to apply to live in such an inhospitable environment. An unfinished concrete building. So, of course, the tale has a fantastic allure, like taking over a bank tower. I immediately think of the Bertolt Brecht, the three-penny opera, that famous quote, what is the robbing of a bank compared to the founding of a bank? As an image, it's so powerful to imagine this Families taking over a bank instead of a bank taking over the house of a family. But the story, of course, has many more layers. And that's why I find really powerful about the project of Angela Bonadies and Juan José Olavarría. They try to talk about the collision, the clashing of architectures, social architectures and inside the tower. So, for instance, one of the most iconic photographs of the series is a sign that was placed in the entrance of the tower, a cardboard sign, beautifully decorated with flowers and colors where all the rules, the code of conduct, was spelled out. From the monthly fees you had to pay to you cannot have visitors stay overnight, kids must be with an adult at all times, no hanging out in the hallways, things like that. Soon you start realizing that this idyllic, utopic fantasy of a community of homeless people taking over an unfinished bank. Well, it also comes with regulation, with exclusion, with a very severe code of conduct. Some of the photographs show the barbershop or the day center, you know, like all this business kind of populated inside the tower to offer some services to people living there. It is interesting to see a great photograph of the tower from the city, and you see the tower, and you also see how the government hang two large banners that says "Chávez vive." Chávez is alive. So that kind of complicates that narrative of all oh, poor people taking over the tower. It's also about how this narrative is manipulated by the government, by the terms of power, presenting this as a solution that clearly was not a solution.
0: So what happened to the building? Who occupies the building today?
8: No one. It has been empty for a while. So basically, these families took over the building in 2007. The artist Angela and Juan Jose visited the tower in 2010. And by 2015, the government evicted the families living in the tower. At that point, it was announced that China was buying the tower to finish it up and but nothing ever happened to that and the tower is empty now
0: what is the importance of telling this story
8: i'm answering the question as a citizen from venezuela there is so much misinformation there is so much romantic projections over the bolivarian revolution in venezuela so it was very easy for people living abroad to connect with this story and immediately romanticize it and take a unreal take on what was going on there. This series of works by Angela Bonadies and Jose Olavarría, rather than showing only one side of the story, they are problematizing this story. Something I like about this project is that it is always different. So they made selections specifically for every installation. Sometimes they add text or drawings, or in this case, we have a wallpaper with the original drawing for the towers that a real estate person will present to sell offices in that building, in contrast with the photograph of people living inside the tower, trying to tame those wild spaces into something more domestic, more livable.
0: The artists have interpreted what they witnessed and recorded of community life within the Tower of David in multiple ways, including a spoken word performance titled The White Elephant, El Elefante Blanco.
8: They wrote a beautiful and strange script for a performance.
9: We watched it for a long time from the outside and pondered its form. The altered grid represented a promise that had cracked or was mere fiction and it revealed on its surface a tussle between abstract and figurative art. We tried to get in several times, but the rainy season started and the tide, as always, became turbulent. It collapsed as well, of course, like many others across the country. We went round and round its base, trying to understand its magnitude and to establish a common language with this giant that had run aground. We surrounded it. We climbed the slopes of a decadent paradise where the lower levels and the top levels evoked different and separate eras, from the horizontal, with its patio and the sun filtering in from above, to the vertical, with the central atrium and the sun that was dominated by a suffocated cage of now broken mirrors.
8: It's a fictive conversation between Angela and Juan José, where they are wondering about the meaning of visiting the tower, and politically what does it mean for two artists to be there, Who are these people? Who are they? What does it say about the political situation in Venezuela? How the rhetoric of the government has manipulated this situation? So it's kind of powerful because rather than making conclusions about the tower means this or means that, or we can read this image as this and that and that, it is more a discussion with themselves about paradoxical image. Of Ocupas, of families taking over the unfinished building for a bank. They are trying to show all the layers that are part of this Torre de David project.
0: Across the Atlantic Ocean in England, an artist and a filmmaker are wreaking havoc with the capitalist system in their home country by opening their own bank, printing their own banknotes, and selling the currency to buy up debt in their community. Hilary Powell and Dan Edelstein are acting on their ideas about financial value. Their optimistic foundation demonstrate what Powell refers to as pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will.
10: We've worked together, but this is a project where really our different filmmaking and the art and the participation and community have all come together within this bank job that we're
0: doing. So what sparked this bank job? This whole idea of creating, I believe, your own money. You're actually printing money. I saw the pictures. Yeah, we yeah. are.
11: Yeah, we are printing our own money. On the faces of our notes, we have local heroes replacing Adam Smith, the Queen, and Winston Churchill. So we have Gary, Cyra, Steve, and Tracy as our heroes. Gary opened a food bank in the area. Cyra runs Plate for You with her entire family, which is a homeless kitchen. Steve opened uh, the Soul Project, which is a youth project taking kids from some of the most underprivileged areas of Walthamstow and giving them positive role models and something to do other than get involved in violence or get caught up in negative behavioural patterns of one kind or another. Finally, Tracy is the headmistress of our children's school which is also in the area and those four characters are our basic heroes on the banknotes that we are printing here.
10: We're talking to you from our bank which is Ho Street Central Bank HSCB and not not BC on uh, High Street in Walthamstow, which is a northeast London, not really a suburb, it's kind of well connected, but uh, up and coming in that like kind of regenerating area in in London. So we've taken over what was the co op bank. It was empty and a co working organisation moved in. We had that kind of rare opportunity to be able to set up our own street facing money creation act in a location that is a good location for engaging community. It's on a kind of London high street. I suppose the story of why we're doing this begins actually in America,
11: really. (laughs) Yeah, America and a group called Strike Debt, they really inspired us because they were buying up and destroying millions of dollars worth of student and medical debt in America. They've changed their name now to the Debt Collective. Andrew Ross, who's a professor at New York University and one of the founding members of Strike Debt, wrote a wonderful book called Creditocracy, and I read that. He described that as movement literature around the act of debt abolition. Reading that book was very transformative for me as a filmmaker and as an artist. What he basically argued was that Debt was being wrapped around access to all of the social goods and uh, Western democracies were being systematically stripped away and replaced with debt or creditocracy. I didn't have a deep history of economics. Certainly had never really been involved that much in terms of politics either. But when I started reading and corresponding with Andrew Ross and also reading David Graeber as well, I began to look at something very basic in a massively different way, which was about debt. This idea that one should always repay one's debt which seems very much the cornerstone of morality. It's even encoded within Christianity that one should neither a lender nor a borrower be and that Christ was the redeemer who was paying off the debts of humanity and this idea that sin and debt were absolutely the same thing, uh, which is so encoded within our moral DNA, it began to get challenged by these amazing thinkers and writers. So that's the genesis of our bank. What we're really saying here is that the system whereby money is created across the world is something which leads to systematic inequality because 97% of all money that's in circulation is created by private banks as interest-bearing loans. That's certainly the right percentage for Britain anyway. What that means is that the more money that's in circulation, the more debt. And what's happened certainly in Britain is that since the 60s, we've got 25,000% more money in circulation over here, which means 25,000% more debt at the same time. And most of that debt, about 64% of it, is created when banks make loans for mortgages. Because that's a non-productive area in the economy, it inflates the value of houses to the point where it's very, very difficult for new house buyers to afford to buy a new house, and it also means that rents go up as well. There's a huge lack of awareness of it because in November last year, 2017, this group called Positive Money did a survey of 100 politicians in Westminster, and 85% of them didn't know where money comes from. And that's a shocking statistic. So that's why the bank, in a, in a way, is an educational project as well as everything else. One of the major things that we're trying to argue is that the money system itself is leading to this kind of systematic Inequality And encoded within money, the type of money that we use in society, is, it's like an invisible force of destruction. And so what we're trying to create through the bank is a kind of positive form of money which is looking towards social value as the defining characteristic of what money should be about. There's no harm in people having debts between one another. That's normal in any community. We run up debts between us. It's how we pay one another back effectively is, is the question.
0: What is the experience of your bank? How is the community engaging in this bank?
10: Well, we set it up. So the kind of purpose of our money creation is that we are printing our own money in order to raise Enough money, so we're raising 40 to 50,000 pounds and we're at 30,000 in order to buy up local payday debt and then also give the other half the money to the people featured on the notes and their causes. So, our bank itself, we put out calls and we have a diverse selection of local people, not all of them artists. We wanted to and have a real mixture of people who had printmaking skills to work on a public production line. So everyone's in their uniforms, which involve like green visors, you know, like the accountancy visors. And we've been screen printing, letter pressing, foil blocking and also papermaking in here. And because it's a street facing location, people can walk past and see this kind of quite absurd sight of money being printed and hung up to dry, and in some cases ironed and laundered out back and people can come in and go on a little tour and through that kind of more tactile making and sharing start to talk about some of the bigger concepts that this project aims to interrogate and share knowledge about how money is made, how debt works. But essentially, yeah, it's a kind of community of people making and then in the evenings we've had various debates and talks around these themes from other money like cryptocurrencies and local exchange schemes to cooperatives. So we've expanding that conversation through making and community here. And because we're quite a good location near a tube, we've been able to invite key thinkers on debt and money alongside local community people who are also working on those themes. So it's been quite a mixture it did really take off. We didn't know what to expect. We opened our doors and, you know, we put the message out but we were lucky to have a Guardian, like a UK newspaper, article come out, and then we had queues down the street of people wanting to exchange their Elizabeths and Winston Brown Sterling for our currency.
0: What has been the interest of the art world? It's well,
11: growing. Like let's say that it's growing. I mean, like so we've we've sold full sets.
10: I suppose more institutions than. An art World Gallery, but institutions we've had the Victorian Albert Museum have bought a full set because it really they have a remit of collecting the art of protest, and then the Bank of England Museum, the Museum of London, the Fitzwilliam Museum. So we've yeah these major institutions have recognised the I suppose the social they're all collecting for different reasons.
11: We're trying to get the Tate to um, accept (laughs) like one of our our next plan is to explode a cash in transit vehicle full of all the debt that we're just buying up now uh, literally to explode it with plastic explosives and call it Big Bang 2 and then to try and hang that in the turbine hall of the Tate Modern so I've been tweeting (laughs) to the Tate asking them if we can use their turbine hall for the installation. We're being a little bit provocative in our um, attempts to bring this into the art world.
0: Let's talk about the film you're actually I'm sure using the site of production there as some of the content. Yeah
10: it's been a long process but we've started filming you know in America meeting strike debt and it's been like maybe four years of building this and it only became bank job quite recently really when we found the bank when we decided to Make these local people into the characters on the notes, and that took a long time to persuade people to kind of stand up and be a
0: you know, they're kind of like icons on the notes. So, the film itself will contain all of this. I love your description an unlikely team, unsurmountable odds, even explosions. Yes,
9: (laughs) yeah, that's the the
11: climax. We're taking our cues from the genre of the heist movie. I guess you've probably seen the, the original Italian job with Michael Caine. Have you seen that? yes there's a moment in that film where they're practicing the explosion of trying to blow up a cash in transit vehicle which they're going to take all the money out of and they try and blow up just the doors but they blow up the entire vehicle and then Michael Caine says and Hillary does I this better than me I can
10: do oh my god Come on you're only, only supposed to blow the bloody doors off that's not it
11: at all. <laughs> <laughs> Hillary did that very well as an Australian so we're quite interested in taking oh a, a similar moment to that but we want to blow up this cash-in-transit vehicle and we're going to call it Big Bang 2 because Big Bang 1 was 1986 when Maggie Thatcher deregulated the city and allowed the city traders to use retail bank money to speculate on the stock market and also to make loans to whoever they fancied, without worrying about the fractional reserves they held in their vaults, which led to massive price increases in housing around Britain. Big Bang 2 is the climax of our movie, where we're going to blow up this cash-in-transit vehicle, blowing up a million pounds of local debt in the back, and that's going to be like the heart of our film, really.
10: So there's lots of films that you feel you should watch on economics and money, and they tend to be quite dry. And, and even though they're containing all those messages, it's hard to engage audiences in some of them. We try and tackle these big concepts that, you know, however educated and clever you're meant to be, uh, just kind of go over your head in a way with, like, humour and warmth and stemming out of this community that we've built so that hopefully we create a film that pierces that the heart of the financial system
0: In the near future, the creative duo plans to invite artists into their bank for public programs that explore the intersection of art, economics, and politics issues that mainstream media doesn't cover. Reverend Billy, a New York-based artist-activist, is known for attracting the attention of media and law enforcement officials, too. Fresh Art International met up with Billy in Athens, Greece, where he was appearing in the annual Athens and Epidaurus Festival. With his disciples, the Reverend has been preaching against consumerism for nearly two decades, carrying out cash register exorcisms, retail interventions, corporate resistance, and public protest.
12: I started it with Savitri, who's here somewhere, and uh, the two of us started this thing. Her dad is a radical Muslim. My parents are radical Christians, Dutch Calvinists from Holland, Michigan, the people who brought you apartheid and Blackwater, USA, and so forth. So we're we're both from that kind of background, very sexist, racist backgrounds. We think that consumerism is the new big church in the United States and in the West. Shopping is a religion. And we want to deprogram the shoppers somehow.
0: After a press conference in Syntagma Square in front of the Parliament building, the group staged a march down the city's main shopping street.
13: We are visitors in this great city, but we are aware of the tensions that exist here. They are alarmingly similar to those in our home city, New
0: York. In Athens, the Stop Shopping Choir focused on what many consider a key factor to both the debt crisis and the refugee crisis in present-day Greece.
13: Prefigured here is the end game of capitalism. After draining us of our complexity, shadowing us with debt, anxiety and isolation, and wreaking havoc on the Earth's life system, capitalism has nearly completed its project, forcing us into the narrowest of roles. Until there are only two kinds of people in the world: tourists and migrants. We live in service to billionaire overlords, as unaware of our servitude as we are of our freedom. Although both sectors are victimized by capital, the suffering is nothing like equal. A much greater share of the pain is borne by the migrants. Donald Trump is our first target, as his presidency is little more than a brand, more insidious and vapid than any other and more destructive and emblematic of yeah. the terrible pressures exerted by capitalism..
0: The marching choirs sang about the similarities and differences between migrants and tourists, while tourists and local shoppers held up their phones to take pictures. Some started to dance when they heard the music as they exited large chain stores, lingering in the cool streams of air conditioning leaking from the doorways. Local buskers at the heart of the shopping district added instrumental backing.
12: Trump is the king of consumerism. Everything he sees that he wants, he he stamps Trump on it, makes it his brand. And the evangelical movement in the United States is the core of his support. So we started this thing 20 years ago and we feel like we're right back where we started. Consumerism and militarism pretty much wraps up the demographics the groups of people and economies that are killing the Earth's life system. So tourists have got to, basically people who are just shoppers, they've got to recognize that what they're doing is not prosperity. It's not a good economy, it's not helping people, it's not freedom, it's not your nation-state, it's not your religion. they folded everything into consumerism now, right? I and mean, it's a lie. It's a lie.
0: With a population just under 11 million, Greece expects to welcome nearly 30 million tourists in 2018. Reverend Billy compares Athens to New York, imploring tourists and locals alike to join the cause of Tourists Against Trump, to resist the lure of apolitical consumption.
12: They are considered apolitical because they're the ultimate consumers. They turn their destinations into products. They uh, surround themselves with so many products that they really don't have an experience. There's an old saying that tourists destroy what they seek. New York City has a Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, and Broadway, and so forth, so we we have a similar situation. We have immigrants and tourists push, pushed up against each other in Athens and New York City, sharing this upper-class, lower-class uh, collision. And they're all human beings, and they are sharing an impossible, deadly, apocalyptic, season together. They are sharing what we call euphemistically the end of the world, where the major life systems of the earth are radically changing their signals to us, where our ability to live in this quote unquote civilization is undergoing an extreme change. Mortalities will go way up in both those groups. So what if they were to talk to each other? Here we have these strong men taking over these countries who find that late stage capitalism fits their militarism really well. The Supermall and the fighter plane, they go together really well for Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, they go together really well. They're making that discovery, oh, keep them transfixed. They keep them hypnotized. And we will arm everybody, we'll take over. So the people that might make it a real democracy, people of color, recent arrivals, people who still believe in neighborhoods and and the democratic process, they are criminalized. Now I'm preaching, you don't deserve this.
0: In Athens, Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping ended their rally symbolically, where crowds of tourists and migrants gather each day.
12: They are mixing with each other right here before our very eyes. Yesterday, at the end of our rally, we had Palestinians doing folk dances. So you don't have to look far. They're in our field of vision right now. So this is a good place for us to be. With the the idea that we have, we couldn't be in a better place. Syntagma Square and here in the shadow of the Parthenon. Ultimately, our job to walk down that street and find a way to solve the hypnosis of shopping, the narcosis of tourism. And I think we got it! Music and dancing,
13: yes! don't even speak as many reasons for leaving as for living, and the cause for leaving is living. We've got to live. We've
0: got to live. What we try
13: to live, and it's life. Hey. Where were you born? How much money you got? What's your final
0: destination? This is Fresh Art International. I'm Cathy Bird. More than a few artists, curators, and filmmakers are working to clarify our relationship with capitalism. They expose how financial markets are obscured in bank ledgers and legal frameworks. Artists make those hidden relationships visible, connecting the global system to our daily lives in ways we can feel and understand. In New York, debt fair provided insight into the capitalist consequences of an art education in the United States. In Oakland, Berlin, and Brussels, the artifacts of capitalism are on display so that we can draw connections between class, race, environment, and trading systems. In Venezuela, artists documented the complex political machinations surrounding an unfinished high-rise bank building used by homeless families. In London, Artists created their own bank in an attempt to eradicate the burden of local debt and raise awareness of our agency within a larger system. In Greece, a rally down a main shopping street attempts to divert tourists from mindless consumption. These are just a few of the creative projects raising awareness of the impact of capitalism on our lives. Thank you to the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation for supporting the art of capitalism featured in Issue 10 of the online periodical Exhibitions on the Cusp. Thank you to Miami-based artist Eddie Arroyo for highlighting The Art of Capitalism, an episode originally released on August 6, 2018. Visit our website to learn more and hear other conversations from the world of contemporary art and culture. We invite you to review Fresh Art International on Apple Podcasts. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Locust Projects, the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, and listeners like you are among those who make this oral history project possible. Go to FreshArtInternational.com and click on the red support button. Contribute to support our stories. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.